Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. Today we're going to be taking a look at the life and music of the late Chris Cornell. He fronted Soundgarden, Temple of the Dog, and Audio Slave, and showed a gentler dimension to his talent on the best of his solo work. He's one of the great rock vocalists of all time, probably the greatest hard rock hour in the vein of Robert Plant since Robert Plant himself. And I think the world is realizing that we took his talent a little bit for granted, and that maybe we also never quite recognized the pain and darkness that was actually all too evident in his songs. The last song he played on stage with Soundgarden the night of his suicide was Slaves and Bulldozers, and it has the lyric, Every word I said is what I mean, which has a pretty different resonance right now. We're going to play a couple interviews with Chris on today's show, and we'll start with this 2014 conversation with Rolling Stone's Corey Groh, where Chris looked back at Super Unknown, Soundgarden's 1996 commercial breakthrough. Corey, it seems like Chris was in a particularly reflective mood when he talked to you. He was, yeah, you're right. He was in a kind of reflective mood. He said it was the first time he'd ever really taken the time to look back on a past Soundgarden album. He'd never really thought about this before. He just plays live and moves forward. So he'd found a lot about the album that he didn't know before. It, it meant something different to him now as he was, you know, 20 years later. And uh, as we talked about a lot of the songs and, you know, some of the darkness that we've been talking about came up in the interview. You know, he seemed like he'd been past that all, but he seemed it, he seemed very frank and earnest about his relationship with that kind of darkness, which I thought was interesting. In hindsight, at the time when I did the interview, I hadn't really thought about it too much. Yeah, I mean, he very directly addresses the issue of depression mm -hmm. in this interview. And, and it's funny, and we're, we're going to hear it in a second, but what, one of the things you hear is how casually he sort of mentions it to you. His voice doesn't sound very emotional, even mm -hmm. as he kind of confesses the truth behind A Fell in Black Days. Mm -hmm. And I think maybe that's one of the reasons why people didn't quite fully absorb what was going on with him. Maybe even people close to him because he has such a, he said it was such a chill dude. Yeah. You know? well, I mean, and it's like, <laughs> overtly, you know, it's that casualness too, that I really didn't ask a follow up. Like, how are you today? How are you dealing with this today? I didn't think about it because he's so casual, you know, also he was 49, I think at the time. And I realized this honestly, when I did a, a Velvet Revolver story in the mid 2000s and it, it became clear that like Duff McKagan had relapsed and everyone was going through troubles people kind of think like the drama ends when you turn like 37 and then you're like <laughs> you, then you're just good but the truth is man like you know things can go wrong at any yeah. time whether you're a rock star or just a person it's like a Robin Williams absolutely um, so let's hear on that note let's hear Corey Grow talking with Chris Cornell about Super Unknown and uh, kind of the history of Soundgarden. Do you look back at Super Unknown? Do you look at that era fondly? Was that a good time for you? Well, you know, I never looked back <laughs> until the last few months, really. Uh -huh. And um, I think when when Bad Motor Finger came around, where it was like a 20th anniversary, and we talked about doing a re-release, and we just kind of thought, what's the point? You know, it's a, so it's 20 years, whatever. Um, and uh, I, I noticed that, that people have been doing that a lot in the last few years, just kind of focusing on, on a record and making a big deal out of an anniversary of it. And it wasn't until we did this that I realized how, for me personally, how good it is, because I never look back, mm -hmm. ever. I mean, I'm, I'm always looking ahead and I'm always working on the next thing, and, and I'm not someone that sits and listens to all of my previous records that often um so this is the first time and it's 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 most interesting because i think when soundgarden made uh super unknown in spite of the fact that we had just become internationally known from bad motor finger and having you know a, a multi-platinum record we've been a band for a long time um like over eight years mm -hmm. 
and uh, so there was there was a lot of history of music, and we had toured a ton, playing all of it, and focusing on just the songs on Super Unknown it was very different. It was it was really one of the most dramatic shifts in what we were doing musically, and I don't think I realized it at the time. Um, I think it was a really exciting time, but I also think that it was a time, for me at least personally, filled with a tremendous amount of responsibility and pressure to sort of prove who we were in a way, to to show what I believed or sort of knew in my heart that we kind of stood alone and outside of um, what was becoming a kind of a convenient geographic group that we were we were uh inside and i never felt bad about being lumped in with other seattle bands i thought it was great Mm -hmm. but i also felt like all of us were going to have to prove that we could also exist with autonomy and and that we deserve to be playing on an international stage and that we deserve to have videos on tv and songs on the radio and it wasn't just a fad that that uh consisted of like a, a British invasion um, or a New York noise scene and now it's Seattle you know we, there was more to it than, than that I felt and I felt like all of us had to kind of prove it and super unknown was that for me mm-hmm. it was showing what we can do um, you know that that is outside of what anyone might expect and show that we weren't just a, a a flavor of the month that's part of a current fad. And so for that, you know, I, I just, I, I think that I felt like there was a, there was a moment where we had the opportunity, but I, I also really felt like I had a responsibility to seize it. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I think we really did. The other aspect of it, which kind of doubled up, I think, on, on just, um, how difficult a task we set ourselves was that we were in a position also where it was time to reinvent ourselves a little bit. And again, that wasn't something that would have been noticed by the the larger audience that we had just uh, that we had just achieved with with Bad Motor Finger. Um, but that wouldn't have made any sense to them. This was the first time they'd heard us with Bad Motor Finger. Now we're doing what they would think of as a follow-up, even though it's like our fourth full-length record. Mm-hmm. To us, Bad Motor Finger was kind of a, you know, it kind of defined those previous years. We'd kind of, I think, achieved what we'd been after. And I don't know that we could have bettered it. I think we had, we had made that record, and it was time to do something completely different. So mm-hmm. we were doing that as well, <laughs> right. simultaneously. Um, so I remember it being um, uh, somewhat stressful. Uh, it was also extremely exciting. You know, th- this is a period where you're you're doing a follow-up to a huge record and a ginormous year for your town and and for all your friends' bands. And you know, it's really a surreal time for us. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's it's one of those well, all of our dreams are coming true kind of moments. <laughs> in ways that we maybe would have never expected, because we were just an indie band, and that's what we thought we'd always be. Um, and so, you know, there was pressure. It was also, it was also kind of this amazing, surreal, magical time. And uh, and the music, it, it kind of came one song at a time. We were not a band that would sit 
down and discuss a direction of an album before we started writing. We've never done it. Um, it's always been, here's an idea, here's a, here's a demo of a song I did at home, you know, let me hear your idea. And we just kind of focus on, on this song and that song and, and uh, as we would arrange them and as we would kind of learn more, the album would slowly take shape. But Super Unknown, maybe more than most, didn't reveal itself to be what it was until the very end. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think literally until we were three quarters of the way through mixing it with with Brendan, mm-hmm. did I understand what it what it really was. Wow. You know, you talked about the pressure and kind of wanting to do something different and set yourself apart. Do you remember making kind of a conscious decision to make maybe more of a traditional style, like song structure, like 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 with Black Hole Sun or like you know versus something from Bad Motor Finger? Um, I don't know that that I thought about it in that context. Um. You know, I had done, I had done T- Temple of the Dog, for example, which for me was kind of my, those were sort of my hobby songs, you know, songs that I had, I had written without necessarily having a destination for them mm-hmm. that were in sort of more of a straightforward blues rock style with traditional arrangements and, and kind of obvious choruses and things like that. Um, and I think I had introduced a little bit of that, at least in, in my approach on Bad Motor Finger was something like Outshine, for example. Sure. You know, where it clearly has a chorus, it clearly has like an instrumental breakdown. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know if it was a focus to to have a, any kind of a more traditional structure. I think those things kind of happened by accident. Mm-hmm. Um, I think one of the bigger focuses to me was because all four of us would contribute music um i wanted to kind of embrace what that meant and uh to me what that meant was a little bit like the white album where if if someone brings in a song for example if matt brings in a song where he's played guitar on a demo and his approach to that guitar playing really makes that feel great and makes that song special then even though he's our drummer why not have him play guitar on it uh-huh. yeah um and I don't even know if that I don't know if that happened. That was just an, an example of what I was thinking. Like, let's rather than bring in all of these ideas and then sort of put them through what is the normal Soundgarden machine of everyone just kind of takes each part and makes it their own and adds things and then they all end up sounding like Soundgarden songs. Let's let's try to steer more into the init- initial inspirations and. Um, make the song the priority and, and make the record the priority as opposed to uh, any other aspect. Mm-hmm. And the example, I think, of the song Half mm-hmm. was the one that embraced that the most because I'm not even on it. Right. And I, I remember having a, a brief conversation with Ben about me really thinking he should sing it because his singing on the demo was so amazing to me it just it the, the whole mood of the song was never going to be uh as good if he didn't do it mm-hmm. and his response was if if i sing it and you don't then this is a soundgarden song on our album that you're not even on and my response was that's what i'm talking about mm-hmm. this is about the album this is about the songs this is about uh, the the song's best foot forward and, and and that should always be the most important thing and that was an idea that i really sort of wholeheartedly embraced that i felt was going to be 
something that would help us expand and sort of push the boundaries of who we felt Soundgarden was at the time and do it in a way that we'd never done it before. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that works so well that the next the, the next album, Down on the Upside, as well as King Animal, kind of uh, have had similar approaches where it's anything goes. Mm-hmm. That's cool. What was your headspace at the time of uh, Super Unknown? Because a lot of the a lot of the lyrics are kind of dark, and I was just kind of wondering why why that was where you were at at that time. Um, I I don't know if if uh, I don't know if I would say that I was in a particularly dark or moody headspace more than other times. I I think that uh, one of the reasons that lyrically songs are approached that way in Soundgarden it's because I, I feel like they have to be born from the music often mm-hmm. or you know if I have a lyrical idea separate from Soundgarden music I'll know if it's going to make a good Soundgarden song or not because it, it tended to reflect what the music was and what the feeling of the music was um, which usually was was somewhat dark and somber or moody it, or you know over the top kind of visceral aggressive angry um i didn't really ever i, I didn't really ever want to write lyrically in contrast to what the music was doing it, it never made sense to me mm-hmm. and, you know there were a few examples of bands i was a fan of over the years where the lyricists would sort of write in a vacuum just kind of sit and, and have a book full of lyrics and write lyrics and then just kind of throw them onto a song and sometimes that works brilliantly and other times it wouldn't it would just uh, would feel a disconnect and so my approach was always find the mood that's in the music and and figure out where that takes me and that's that's where the lyrics come from and, and Super Unknown was no different mm-hmm. and, and because there were some musical moods that were different than anything we'd ever done before I think it opened up some different avenues of thought and some, some different expression lyrically. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't especially a dark time then? <laughs> not, not that I remember, no more than usual. You know, <laughs> I, I think that it, I always struggled with depression and, and isolation, and, and so those could come out. I also think that the mood of, of Seattle to me and the way that I always interpreted that mood was something that was always a little bit uh, introspective and, and dark and and... I wouldn't say depressing, but um, introspective in, in, in a way that, that could be moodier and, and darker. Mm-hmm. I can see that. Uh, a curious thing is, you know, you're talking about you know, lyrics being inspired by the songs. On the, the deluxe version, there's a completely different version of uh, Fell on Black Days. Uh, that's yeah, that's, that illustrates what I'm talking about in terms of, of finding the music that goes with the lyric or finding the lyric, you know, that goes with the music. And so on Black Days, I had the idea um, of the title and, and, and the idea of the attitude that I wanted to convey, and it just took a while for me to find the music that I felt actually fit it perfectly. And I think there, there were a couple of other versions, all very different than each other musically, and we all liked all of them. Um, but none of them really clicked until uh, the version that's on Super Unknown, um, where I felt like it was, the, the music seemed to support the lyrical idea to where when the lyrics were written for that version of the music, it all kind of then made sense. And it was an, it was an attitude that, 
I felt was communicatable and people could understand it, and it all felt natural. Mm -hmm. I wasn't sort of forcing an attitude onto the music, which I think I probably was doing a little bit on some of the earlier versions. And although they worked, it didn't didn't come across as well. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of an instance where you had this really great title and you wanted to <laughs> make it work in there. Well, it was this idea, and I'd had it for a long time because I had noticed, you know, already in my life there would be periods where I would just kind of feel like suddenly things aren't going that well and I don't feel that great about my life and not based on any particular thing. I just sort of noticed that people have this tendency to sometimes look up one day and realize that things have changed though so there wasn't the catastrophe and you know there wasn't a relationship split up or nobody got in a car wreck or nobody's parents died or anything. It just, uh, the outlook had changed. Mm -hmm. While everything appears circumstantially as the same um, and that was the song that I wanted to write about that you know no matter how happy you are you you can wake up one day without any specific thing occurring mm -hmm. to bring you into a darker place and you'll just be in a darker place anyway um, mm -hmm. and and to me that was always kind of a, a terrifying thought because that's something that, as far as I know we don't necessarily have control over That was Corey Grow talking with the late Chris Cornell about Super Unknown and really delving into some of Chris's depression and, and darker thoughts and how they influenced the music. We'll be right back with a lot more on Rolling Stone Music Now. We're celebrating the life and music of Chris Cornell today, and we have uh, Corey Grow in the studio. Hey, Corey. Hey. And Andy Green in the studio. Hello, hey. Andy. And we're playing some audio from Corey's interview with Chris and a little bit later, Andy's interview with Chris. Kim Neely, who was a great Rolling Stone writer, did the cover story with Soundgarden when the, when Super Unknown came out. And one of the crazier things that happened in, in the course of reporting a Rolling Stone cover story is they actually found out about Kurt Cobain's suicide while she was with the band, which is pretty famous. Wow. Yeah. There's a part of the story where she talks about Chris's lyrics, and this is what Matt Cameron, the drummer, says. Chris's lyrics deal with inner struggles he's gone through, but a lot of people can relate to them. I think the angst this generation is experiencing is very valid, and I think it's pretty important that this generation of bands is actually dealing with those issues. And then uh, Kim writes, most of the parents of those who are buying Super Unknown were raised in a less threatening environment than their kids were. It's likely that they would see Cornell's lyrics as just so much doom-mongering muck. For their kids, though, Soundgarden's vision of life probably seems an accurate, if slightly metaphorical, reflection of reality. And this is Chris Cornell talking now. Now more than ever, there's so much information young people have to sift through to finally arrive at some sense of their identity. I think there's going to be more and more people who just give up hope. This is the first generation that can look at the mortality of the human race pretty realistically. It isn't H.G. Wells anymore. It's not, well, three or four generations from now, we might not have any fish. It's we don't have any fish. You can't throw a young person into this environment in this day and age without any support. But there seems to be so much less of that. I mean, that's the way I feel. I'm successful in what I do, but I don't really have a clue where I'm going or how I fit into the rest of society. I guess the music industry didn't predict that this generation of songwriters was going to plug in so accurately and so unanimously to the group of people who are buying records. To me, it makes perfect sense. It's a representation of the generation that wasn't being accurately represented. It's really interesting. I think it kind of speaks to the broader context of what we were talking about earlier, which is yeah. like, it did seem sort of like a trend to be a you downer on the radio, but there was a, you know, obviously there was a, a big reason for that. So in the next portion of Corey Groh's interview with Chris Cornell, 
he starts by asking him about what Chris learned about the process of making Super Unknown as they put together this deluxe box set from listening to the demos. And the first thing Chris talks about is the song Black Hole Sun. So let's hear that. I imagine you've, you you kind of went through all of the stuff that made it onto the deluxe edition. Was there anything on these rehearsal tapes or any of the demos that really surprised you? Um, all the demos kind of surprised me. I, I think that, uh, you know, there's, there's distance from it now, but um, demoing is a strange thing because demoing means that you're writing a song and you're recording some version of an arrangement. Oftentimes without the feedback of a band or without the ability to play it in a room with the band, mm-hmm. which helps you kind of understand sometimes what's working and what's not working. But it can also uh, create a situation where you'll change something that maybe didn't need to be changed. So it's difficult to have objectivity. And During the process of writing and recording a demo, I have no objectivity at all. I don't know if it's good or if it's bad or what it is. Mm-hmm. And uh, So going back and listening to them and hearing how similar they were to the final versions or, or in what ways they're different and um, even hearing aspects like on Black Hole Sun there was one particular thing that I did on the demo that I really liked that I just simply forgot to do <laughs> on the album version. What was it? Uh, well, there, there was a Leslie cabinet that I was using, a specific one, and I used it on the demo and on the album version. And it just had a two-speed control like they usually do. It's a pedal you step on. Mm-hmm. And in the verses, it's this very fast, spinning speaker, um, and it gives it that, that sound for the melody that's played in the verses. And as the chorus hit, I would just click it and it and the speaker would slowly slow down so that whole arpeggio part of the chorus would have this sweep that's changing speeds and slowing down throughout it which gave it this really kind of drunken cough syrupy feeling that i really liked and Mm -hmm. i forgot to do it (laughs) thinking about it later i thought wow that it it really made it more psychedelic but then uh, you know of course i also thought that that also could have been one element that would have changed its appeal in terms of radio programmers running to play it. Mm-hmm. They all did. When you, well, speaking of that, when you were writing that song, did you think that it was a hit? Did you, was it something that you knew would be big? No, I, I felt like it was one of those songs where, where I really loved it, and I felt like it, you know this is a, a success unto um, myself being a fan of music and always wanting to write a song that would make me feel like that. But I wasn't sure that it was was right for Soundgarden, and I'm not sure if any of us were. Everyone responded um, really positively to the song, but I don't know that any of us were 100% confident that it should be uh, on a Soundgarden record until we recorded it. Um, But even then, I don't think any of us, including um, Adam Casper or, or Michael Beinhorn or anyone in the band thought that it would ever be a single. I mean, if you read the lyrics um, of the verses, it's, it's very sort of surreal, esoteric, word painting. It was written very quickly. Um, it, it was stream of consciousness. I, 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 didn't, I wasn't trying to say anything specific. I was really just kind of writing to the feel of the music and, and accepting whatever came out. So if I don't know what it's about, how is it that 
you know, the, uh, this large pop audience is going to listen to it and immediately connect to it. <laughs> and it's still a mystery to me, kind of. I get that the chorus ha- has a, a, a melody and a line that could be sort of sung over and over, uh, kind of repetitively, and it can mean something to someone. Um, <laughs> but it was a surprise mm-hmm. that, that it became this kind of international hit. Mm-hmm. I'm glad that it did, because um, considering all of the different songs that we've had, I really like the fact that this song stylistically seemed to kind of sit outside of any genre. And it wasn't really comparable to anything anyone else was doing at the time or before or since. It just kind of seemed to stand on its own. Mm-hmm. And it did very much, to me, seem to lend itself to Soundgarden. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think just the way everyone played on it, everyone played with their own style, and that only seemed to enhance it. It really worked. And and that those are, I think, big moments in, in a band's history when they really kind of push the boundaries of what they're used to being comfortable with and have it, have it work so well. Realize that, that you can push the boundaries to, to a degree of success that it kind of encompasses everything. Mm-hmm. Um, the creativity, the expression, and even even the commercial appeal. Can, you know, that can all happen, I think, if you're not obsessed with the commercial appeal part of it. I right. think that's sort of the kiss of death. Yeah. I, I don't think that I've ever believed for one second that I have the ability to sit down uh, and write a hit song. Mm-hmm. No, I understand. Um from reading the liner notes for the the deluxe edition, it seemed like the song that you workshopped the most, or like in hindsight, was like suicide. And uh, I thought that an interesting thing that I think I read in the liner notes was it kind of as you worked on it, I think you said that it kind of became this metaphor for how you were feeling at the time about Andy Wood. I was just wondering how. Um, that's it. Yeah, you know the the lyrically, it was actually this simple moment that happened to me, and and it. You know, I, I don't know that I ever directly related it to Andy, although there were a lot of songs that people probably don't know about um, where there were references to uh, to him or to how I was feeling about what happened with him. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I just think that that was something that happened to me that uh, that was a traumatic thing and, and that I had a difficult time resolving and still never really have. And... and and still live with, and I, you know, that's one of the moments where maybe in some ways it could have shown up, but, but you know, I'm not really sure specifically where. Mm-hmm. No, that's right. Yeah, it said, said it was kind of oblique, but it was kind of an interesting thing. I just was curious, of, you know, one of those hindsight things. Um, I mean, uh, yeah, it, it's uh, it's hard to say. I mean, on that yeah. one, the, the 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 narrative is really the. Uh, it's not it's it's, a metaphor. It's, it's a right. It's what happened. Specific moment that happened where I was recording the song, and I had all the music and was recording a musical arrangement of it as a demo in my basement. When I came upstairs out of my basement, um, I heard a thud against the window, and it was a uh, female robin mm-hmm. that had flown into the window and broke her neck, and was just kind of laying out there, and I didn't know what to do. So I ended up I ended up smashing her with a brick, kind of putting her out of her misery. Um, 
because I didn't want to sit there and watch her suffer. Yeah. And, and then when I went back down to finish recording, I decided that that would be the lyrics to the song. Mm-hmm. So as much as it sounds like I'm singing about a, a person and, and the metaphor is this sort of bird in flight that then dies, and um, it was literal. <laughs> right, yeah. No, no, I understood that. I had read that, too. Yeah. Um, um, another thing I was curious about is the, the, the liner notes. They're kind of framed around when... A little bit after when Super Unknown came out, and around when you found out that, that Kurt Cobain had died, mm-hmm. I was just wondering: were, were you close to him? How, how, you know, like the one thing the liners didn't really have a whole lot of your perspective on that. It kind of was a lot of the other guys. Oh well, yeah, I don't. I I wasn't um, one of his close friends. Um, you know, I think I think Kim knew him better, and Ben was very close with them and with him, and had toured with them early on. Um, and uh, there was a time when he was going to be a fourth member of Nirvana, but he didn't do it because he wasn't really necessarily invited to write songs. Um, and he was then as an you know, extremely creative guy. But it it uh, it was also something, in a way, similar to losing Andy or losing friends that died after that. Um, where it's not, it's not so much the, the person and the relationship with them, but the um, the inspiration, the creative inspiration uh, that that this person has, and that I would get from that person, that my perception of sort of the world of music at large, artistically, shrank mm-hmm. because suddenly this brilliant guy is gone. You know, and, and I'm not even talking about what he meant culturally. I'm talking about uh, his creativity. I, it was super inspiring from the very first demo that I ever heard. Um, and that just kind of broadened my, my sort of mental picture of what the, what the world was creatively, and suddenly a big chunk of it fell off. Yeah. Um, and that was the way I always felt about Andy. It was, the, to me, the, the tragedy was much more that than the fact that I would never see him again. It was that I would never hear him again. You know, I, I, I guess there's this projection that I would have had, that I did have with Andy, that I did have with Kurt, that I did have with Jeff Buckley and other friends of mine that died, and, and this projection of looking into the future of all of these amazing things that they're going to do, and, and I'll never be able to predict what that is, and all of this music that will come out that will challenge me and that will inspire me and and that the world will listen to you know in that sort of dramatic romantic version of the perspective and and when that goes away the, the i just noticed for me in particular that was a really hard thing mm-hmm. um and it and it continues to be a hard thing and, and uh I, I i'm not sure i ever really figured out how to deal with it but um there is a, a large part i think of of Soundgarden history to me and, and the songwriting of it that is wrapped up in that conflict of losing these incredible creative limbs of what I imagine is, is this incredible infinite world of, of the power of our creativity. You know? And these were people that you know and people that, that you can share these experiences with while you're learning what your power of, of, of that creativity is. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and then there were also these miraculous moments that that were 
existing around a similar time, you know, one of which is, is Eddie showing up uh, and starting a new band with your friends that just lost this amazing person. Mm-hmm. And having that creative output and outpouring be so phenomenal, you know, to the degree that it changed the face of rock music in the world. It was a pretty incredible thing. Mm-hmm. So there were ups, you know, and these huge, amazing ups, but there were also these difficult conflicts that I have never really been able to resolve. And, and that's, that's part of our history and part of my memory of, of every record, and certainly um, Super Unknown. There's an eeriness in there, a kind of a, a sadness, that, an unresolvable sadness or like an indescribable longing that's, that's in there that you know I've never, I've never really tried to isolate and, and define and fully understand, but it's always there. It's, a, it's like a haunted thing. That was Corey Groh talking with the late Chris Cornell. You can actually read Corey's entire interview with Chris on rollingstone.com right now. Now we're going to play a little bit of an interview with Chris that Andy did in 2016 talking about Temple of the Dog. And it's part of a, a big oral history that you can read online of that band's unique story. And, and then the segment we're about to play, Andy asks him about the inspiration for this song, Hunger Strike, which is certainly one of the in, most indelible moments of the 90s. So let's hear that. So what inspired Hunger Strike? Was it ambivalence towards fame and success at all? Or what was sort of sparked that in your mind? I think it was, uh, you know, there was this, this uh, existential crisis that Soundgarden was certainly faced with in that moment. We were sort of the first band that that um, had attention from from big labels uh, in a way that, that, that was... You know, meaningful enough that there, you know, there was a bidding war. I think by then, and uh, and it was a truly an unusual thing um, for any Seattle band, for sure, because that didn't happen to anybody. Uh, and there was no, um, there was no hope for or desire for it. You know, we were all kind of realizing our dreams as as being in the post-punk U.S. indie rock scene. And, and the beauty of that scene was that it was something, as a band, um, once we created our band, we could be in it. And those were the bands that we loved, and those were our heroes. And and, uh, and we were players in that world of heroes. So so outside of that, um, it, it was really uncomfortable. And, and the idea of getting having more people listen to our music was great, but, but there was a uh, there was a huge mistrust in what that means. Does it make us essentially a commercial rock band, or does it does it make us uh, does it change somehow? Um, whether we know it or not, does it does it change our motivation when we're writing a song or making a record? And and and. Um, Hunger Strike really is is uh, a statement saying that um, you know we're, I'm true to what I'm doing, um, regardless of of uh, what comes of it. Mm-hmm. But I will I will never change what I'm doing um, for for purposes of success or or money. I suppose is is sort of the the overwhelming factor to the statement. Right. 
And so how did so how did the label feel about Temple of the Dog when you approached them about them putting out an album and recording it? Because besides you, they were pretty. They unknown felt guys. like they they felt like sound was, to 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 A and M Soundgarden was um we were kind of their future rock really right um so they didn't they didn't think of us as unknown guys they thought they thought of Soundgarden as being the next big thing right um. And and they thought of of Temple of the Dog being sort of for the singer of Soundgarden's Vanity Project that they were gonna or side project or what have you, um, similar to whatever the Golden Palominos was thought of, <laughs> <laughs> and and that that was my memory at the time, and that was the way I felt like it was the way they were approaching it. They were very polite about it, and and um, they were willing to fund it. To a degree, it wasn't very much money, right? Um, and, but they were polite about it, and they were somewhat insistent that that they be in charge of it. And then we got on and M, and that wasn't a problem because the uh, because of uh, the mother love bomb no longer existing. Um, there weren't any label conflicts, right? And that was it. And huh. that's and how we delivered it. And once we delivered the record. It was very different, and and uh, they well, once they heard it, they felt like this could be a, a huge commercial success for them, um, and you know they were very surprised. And I remember feeling really insulted a lot of the time by by the reaction that it got, um, because I got a lot of uh, we didn't know you could write songs like that, we didn't know you could sing like that. Reactions, and I felt like, well, fuck you. <laughs> yeah. Everybody here knew, you know. I, I just, it just seemed kind of. Uh, I remember even someone that was, he was somewhat of a friend from New York, but but not really saying that. Part of him felt like somehow I I had uh, I was cheating somehow. He wasn't sure how. <laughs> Maybe I was stealing songs somehow. I I I deconstructed some classic rock albums and put them back together like an erector set <laughs> and so I remember feeling that and and uh, uh, I, and and I also felt and that was also a, a period that I think was really a, a, ended up being a really positive thing for Soundgarden which was um, the band sort of felt that reaction from the record company and, and felt like oh no the record company is going to now take our singer aside and try to get him to write songs like that and make albums like that. Um, and maybe he'll be, maybe this will just become a band and, and um, I'll run off with uh, Matt and, and Stone and Jeff and we'll do that. And, and you know, that lasted about a week. And, and um, I think it ultimately it really kind of, galvanized the trust that we had for each other in some ways huh. inside Soundgarden that, that that wasn't something I was interested in that wasn't going to be the style of songwriting I was going to lean toward in the future um, and it wasn't and, it, and we didn't and um, because we we didn't uh, we made one video and we didn't make the rounds as a as a band which was really necessary at the time um, right it wasn't a huge commercial success for them, obviously, until uh, the the two separate bands emerged with successful albums. Right. And, 
Uh-huh. So somebody at MTV figured that out and started playing the video. That was Andy Green interviewing the late Chris Cornell about Temple the Dog and the making of the song Hunger Strike. And one of the things that struck me in that conversation was there's something about Chris Cornell. People seem to underestimate him in some weird way. I love his sort of resentment of people being surprised at, at great things he did. I think he was just too good looking and sang too well, and it just seemed like it was too easy, and so people didn't see the darkness and effort or something. Yeah, and I, th- I think at that moment, that Temple of the Dogs music was so different than Soundgarden it, that it was more commercial, and that did surprise them. It was a very different thing than Soundgarden of that time period. Right. I think in general, it's always so hard to grapple with a loss like this, but one of the many things that makes it so tough is you think about all the stuff that Chris Cornell didn't get to do that would have been amazing. You know, and one of the things we were talking about is like he was actually pals with Jimmy Page. He did like a Q and A with him for for Jimmy's like book project recently, and the fact that Chris Cornell never got to sing with Jimmy Page or even with the reunited Led Zeppelin, what a huge bummer! And Corey, you were saying that there he also could have done something with with Black Sabbath. Right? There was you know, there's this incredible Iomi CD from I guess 15 years ago where he had all these different singers like Henry Rollins and Phil Anselmo and Ozzy was on there too. But you know it was a lot of people from that era from the the 90s that you know it would have been brilliant to hear him sing with them because he did this incredible. Uh, Soundgarden did this incredible Into the Void cover uh, around uh, Bad Motorfinger. Right. Yeah. And that would have sounded amazing. Yeah. I mean, I always think of that Zeppelin tour that almost happened in 2008 where you didn't know who would sing. If it was Chris Cornell, that could have been a really amazing thing. One of the things that we're seeing right now is people reevaluating Chris Cornell and really kind of pushing him up in the pantheon and, and realizing that they maybe underestimated or took him for granted. And as Andy was saying, I mean, for better or worse, his death and the circumstances of his death is are going to color the way that people hear his music and it's going to lend a, a certain gravitas to his music and I think people are going to take it more seriously which is such a sad and awful thing that that's what it takes and it shouldn't have taken that and we should probably remember that as we do our evaluations of these artists and it shouldn't take their passing to fully appreciate the great singers and artists among us. So this has been Rolling Stone Music Now. We'll be back next week on Friday on volume. And in the meantime, download us as a podcast at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and be sure to subscribe as well. And we will see you next week. 